0: Shalom. Shalom. you got to do better than that. Try this one. We're in southern Arizona, right? All right, try this one. Shalom, y'all. Shalom. All right. (laughs) My name is Bruce Rapp. Hey, and with me I have my wife Tracy, who's a missionary with Jews for Jesus as well. She'll be coming up shortly. And, um, And we're with Jews for Jesus. And today I'd like to share with you a presentation that's called Christ in the Passover. Now if you were to ask a Jewish boy or girl who the hero of Passover is, they surely would tell you God Almighty. And then they would tell you Moses, and that's partially true. But if you were to ask a Jewish boy or girl who know the Messiah, who the hero of Passover is, they would tell you Jesus. Now you may be sitting there saying, Jesus, what's Jesus have to do with Passover? Passover is Jewish. Well, so was Jesus. And not only did he celebrate the Passover each and every year that he dwelt on this earth, but I believe he's clearly pictured in the symbols of the Passover and in the order of the Passover. Because Passover is all about about Christ. And as I share this with you, I'm hoping that you would see him in this. And so if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Luke. Luke chapter 22, and we'll read verses 7, 8, and 13. Now, when you came in, you should have received one of these brochures. And uh, you know what? I'm wondering if we can turn these bright lights off and put the lights up. So, um, yeah, I think that would be, because these lights are shining right in my face. And I can't see your faces. Yeah. Yeah, I can see you. All right. So everybody should have received one of these. Everybody should have received, if you haven't received one of these, raise your hand and then I'm sure one of the ushers will get one into your hands. This will allow you to follow along with us. Everything that I'm going to share with you is in this brochure and this will um, give you some insight into what we're talking about. So i having some problem with this. Yeah, I know but it's not working with me, so let's try that. Um, Luke chapter 22, can you hear me out there? Okay, Luke chapter 22, verses seven, eight, and 13. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so they may eat, so that we may eat. And then down to verse 13. And they left and found everything, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now the first night of Passover, which actually this year begins April 22nd. I'm sorry, I keep fumbling with this. It doesn't seem to sit properly in, on my ear. The first night of Passover begins a seven-day feast, which is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And during this time, Jewish people refrained from eating any foods that have any leaven or yeast in it. Now as I started to say, Passover this year comes out April 22nd. And during this time, Jewish people refrain from eating any foods that have any leaven or yeast in it. That's why for up to six weeks before the Passover, the house undergoes a cleaning, a spring cleaning. My grandmother and my mother would go throughout the house, removing all cakes, cookies, crackers, bread, cereals, anything that has any leaven or yeast in it. But did you notice that Luke said, Jesus sent two men to prepare for the Passover. Perhaps that's because in the Jewish tradition, it's the man who comes before God, not only in prayer and in worship, but also in preparation, in ceremonial preparation. Let me see if I got this right. This is a spring holiday. Supposed to clean the house. Jesus sends men to get everything ready. Maybe it's the men who should be doing the spring cleaning. What do you ladies think about that? Well, not so quick. (laughs) The rabbis have come up with a solution for
1: this.
0: (laughs) Now this is a tradition in the Jewish home which is called the search for leaven. In Hebrew it's called the bedechat and in fact, in the brochure on the bottom, you'll see this glossary that will cover some of the words that I'm going to be saying in Hebrew. The bedechat chometz. Want to try that one? Chometz. The search for leaven, and what happens is the head of the household takes three rather different cleaning tools with him. He takes a napkin, he takes a feather, and he takes a wooden spoon, and he begins to search the house for the leaven. You see. The woman of the house took a few crumbs of bread. The night before Passover, she takes a few crumbs of bread and she hides it somewhere in the house. Everything's cleansed except for these few crumbs of bread. And it's his, And the tradition is that he has to search out the remaining crumbs, the search for leaven. My grandfather would take these three tools and he'd begin to search. He'd look upstairs, he'd look downstairs. He'd ask us kids if we knew where it was. And we did, but we couldn't tell him. <laughs> My grandfather would offer us money if we would tell him. My grandma had it, you know. <laughs> Well, you know, if uh, five years old, you know, you look at your grandfather. You know, you look at the money. You get excited. You look at your grandpa, and then you look over at grandma, and she'd be giving you the look. You know, the look. <laughs> well, if she was kind enough to him, perhaps she would hide it in the same place that she hid it last year, and the year before that, and the year before that. When he finds it, he takes the feather and he gently sweeps the crumbs into the wooden spoon and then from the wooden spoon he drops them into the napkin. See, he's not allowed to touch the leaven because leaven is a reference to sin. And in some orthodox communities, what they do is they take the bundle down to the synagogue and there with other members of the congregation they build this bonfire. They dance around the fire, singing psalms, chanting blessings, take the remaining leaven and they burn it. And then he would come home and he would proudly proclaim, I, yes, I have now purged my house of all leaven. But just to be safe, he would add, and any manner of leaven which I have not found or removed may be like the dust of the earth, null and void, amain. Just to be safe. And now the house is cleansed, ready for the celebration. And you know what a celebration. But our ancestors, yes, our ancestors, After all, this is your Bible from cover to cover. Paul tells us that you were grafted in. This becomes your story as well. And so our ancestors were instructed to eat that first Passover meal with their loins girded, sandals on their feet, staves in their hand, ready to leave at a moment's notice. That's what it tells us when they were in Egypt. But today, today when we celebrate the Passover, we actually sit on pillows. And they've been actually doing that for thousands of years. You see, in ancient Middle Eastern societies, it was only the free, only the redeemed that can relax during a meal. That first Passover meal, they were in Egypt. They had to be ready to leave quickly. Maybe you've seen that famous painting or copies of it by Michelangelo of the Last Supper, where all of the disciples are um, are reclining around the table. Anybody ever see a picture like that? And you wondered, why are they reclining around like that? Why are they lying around the table? symbolizes that they're free men. In fact, in the book of uh, Matthew, chapter um, 26, verse 20, Matthew tells us, and you can write these notes down and check them out later if you like, Matthew tells us that Jesus and the disciples were reclining around the table. Symbolizes that they're free men. On Passover, the head of the household puts on special ceremonial garments. My grandfather would put on a white robe, which is called a kittel, because in the Jewish tradition, white is the sign of royalty. Happen to have one here with me today. I'll put it on so you can see it. And um, the one that my grandfather had was a lot more elaborate than this one. He, um, the one he had had all kinds of rhinestones on it and different colored threads. And if you were to go to an, to an Orthodox Jewish community, and I know in Tucson there's several, I don't know, anybody know any Jewish people down here? You don't. Put those hands up back there. Actually, on on the base, there's a a Jewish chapel. Yeah. And so anyway, if you were to go to a a Jewish community, you would see on on Passover, Jewish men wearing these white robes. Sign of uh, royalty, of leadership. In fact, in the Bible, we see many times references to white linen, and when Je- in the book of Revelation it tells us when Jesus returns, he will be wearing white linen. And in fact, what color horse will he be on? White, sign of royalty. Jewish men often wear special head coverings. Maybe you've seen this, we call this a yarmulke or a kippah. Maybe you've been to the Promised Land. Anybody been to the Promised Land here? Nobody's been to Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York? <laughs> Well, they wear this to show their reverence, to show their respect to God. But you see, on Passover, the head of the household puts on something a little bit more important than just a skull cap. You see, on Passover, he's a king, a king in his home, about to lead his family on a journey, a journey of redemption. So he puts on the royal robes, and he puts on a crown, a satin crown. And as a king, he guides his family through the traditional Passover Seder. Now, Seder is a Hebrew word, which means order. And that order of service is found in this book, which is called a Haggadah, which means the telling. You see, everything's laid out in the book. And all you do is follow the order of service as it's written in the book. Well, it looks like there's a customary, looks like everything is ready for the Passover Seder. And there's a customary greeting that's said in the Jewish home on Passover, and it goes like this. Let all who are hungry come and eat. But don't get too excited, I didn't prepare any food. But all the same, come, come and share the Passover Seder with me. And this begins with the lighting of the candle, which is the duty and honor of the woman of the home. And I'm going to ask Tracy to come up as the woman in our home to light the candles and say the blessing. Okay, shalom. So it's traditional for the woman to light the candles, and it's an honor for the woman to light the candles. I'm going to light the candles, and then I'm going to recite a Hebrew prayer in Hebrew and then in English, so you know what the prayer is. Kata lahadnik, shel which means blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has set us apart by His commandments and commanded us to light the Passover candles. Amen. Thanks. You know I think it's fitting that a woman should light the Passover candles because it reminds us that the light of the world our Messiah Jesus comes not from the seed of a man but from the seed of a woman and the will of God. For as Isaiah the prophet had said some 700 years before the birth of Jesus Isaiah said behold a virgin shall give birth to a son and she shall call him Emmanuel a light unto the Gentiles and glory to thy people Israel. The Passover Seder isn't just a meal. It's a banquet. And it isn't just a service. It's a ceremony. And while a potluck in a service, in a church can take what? One to two hours. The Passover Seder can take up to four hours. So sit back and relax. We're here for a while. (laughs) And during this time, all of the adults will drink from their cup four times. There's four pourings. The first pouring is called the cup of sanctification, or the kiddish cup. It sanctifies the meal, sets this meal apart from all other meals conducted in the home. And then as the Passover Seder continues, we come to the second pouring, which is the cup of plagues. And then as the head of the household continues to tell the story through the book, we come to the third cup, which is the most important cup of all, the cup of redemption. And then to the fourth and final pouring, the cup of Alel, lifting the first cup aloft, high to God Almighty, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine, the head of the household sanctifies the meal, he says the Kiddish. Amen. And so now the Passover Seder has officially begun. And it's at this time that the youngest child comes forward to ask four questions, the firkashas as they're called. These four questions, which are in the book, begin to tell the story of Passover. See, everybody gets involved in the Passover Seder. The women removing all the leaven from the home, preparing the meal and the table, welcoming the holiday with the lighting of the candles. The men burning the final leaven and leading the family on this journey, this journey of redemption. And the children asking these four questions, which begin to unravel the story of Passover. And the first question goes like this. Which means, why is this night different than all other nights? Well, those of us who know the story of Passover are obligated to respond. Because of what the Lord did for me when he took me out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he redeemed me. You see, friends, redemption is the very heart of Passover. But Passover imparts more than God's message of redemption. Friends, it imparts God's means of redemption as well. You see, our ancestors were instructed to take an unblemished, spotless lamb, to roast it whole without breaking any of its bones, and to take the blood of those lambs. You know the story. To take the blood of those lambs and apply it to the doorposts of their homes, first to the lentil, and then to the sideposts. And in fact, on the back of the brochure, they give you a picture of that a sense of how it would look. First to the lentil, and then to the sideposts. And because of their obedience to his commands, because of their faith and his provisions, they were spared the ravages of the ten plagues. When the angel of death saw the blood on the doorposts, it was forced to... Passover, and that's how we get the name Passover. What a mighty act of redemption. But what a picture of an even greater redemption. You see, just as those lambs were put to their death without any of their bones being broken, our Messiah Jesus was put to his death without any of his bones being broken. And just as those children of Israel took the blood of those lambs and applied it to the doorposts of their homes by faith, We have the blood of the Lamb of God on the doorposts of our hearts by faith. Amen? It's all about faith, isn't it? The child then comes forward to ask the second question. Why in this night do we eat only unleavened bread when on all other nights we can eat any type of bread? Well, the scriptures tell us that in their haste, Leave the land of Egypt, they couldn't wait for the bread to rise up. They had to take it while it was flat. And on the Passover table in the home is this, they call this a matzah tash. It's a pouch. And um, in this pouch are three sheets, three pockets, and in each pocket are three are three pieces of unleavened bread, matzah. And this says, this says uh, Pesach in Hebrew, reading, and you always read right to left in Hebrew. And so this three-pocket pouch, what the tradition is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. The head of the household removes the middle piece from this three-pocket pouch. Matzah, unleavened bread, unleavened to remind us of being without leaven, without. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul tells us in Corinthians to remove the leaven from our hearts. This reference, this idea of sin. So the head of the household removes the middle piece from the three pocket pouch. He gives thanks, and this is in the way that Jesus said it this He said it the same way. You break it in half, take half of it, the tradition is, and you put it on the side, and the other half you wrap in a napkin. You wrap this in a napkin and you give it a name. You call this the afi Komen. can you say that? Good, afikomen. Afikomen means dessert, or that which comes later. And in fact, that's what takes place. This tradition is that the head of the household takes the afikomen, this dessert, and he hides it somewhere in the house. And later on, during the Passover Seder, all of the children are encouraged to go and find it. And only one finds it, and when he or she finds it, it's their responsibility to give it back to the head of the household. In fact, the Passover Seder can't continue until the Afikoman comes back on the table. Okay, everybody got it? Everybody with me? Okay, so close your eyes now because I'm gonna hide the Afikoman. No peeking, close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. There's one guy back there that has his eyes closed since I started, but that's okay, yeah. <laughs> that's okay, no problem. <laughs> okay, you can open your eyes now. The child then comes forward to ask, the third and the fourth questions. Why on this night do we eat bitter herbs? Twice. And why on this night do we dip our foods into salted water? Not once, but twice. Well, when when on most nights we never eat bitter herbs, nor do we dip our foods into salted water. Well, the the way I explain it is this way. On the Passover table is this Seder tray, as it's called. And despite its appearance, it's not used for deviled eggs. A symbolic piece of Passover foods are put into each of these compartments, and all of these foods are part of our picture of redemption. And everybody at the table partakes in these foods as the head of the household continues to tell the story from the Haggadah, the book. And The first item is called Karpis, which is greens. And generally we'll use parsley or lettuce, and tonight, or today we have parsley. And uh, the Karpis, Karpis means uh, life. And the idea behind the greens is that uh, it's something that was living at one time, life. And everybody would take a pinch of it and before they eat it, as the head's telling the story, we would dip it into a bowl of salted water. And the bowl of salted water represents tears. So by dipping life into the bowl of tears, we're reminded that life without redemption is life immersed in tears. And everybody would eat the carcass. And then the head of the household would continue with the story. And we'd come to the second item, which is called the hazaret. Can you say that one? Good deal. Hazaret. And um, hazaret means root. And I remember growing up in in Brooklyn, New York, and um, in an Orthodox Jewish home, and my grandfather would pull out his pocket knife. And um, we would have a horseradish root. Yeah, this is a horseradish root. You can use an onion or a horseradish root, and we have horseradish root here. And he would pull out his pocket knife, and he would shave pieces of this root off. And he'd pass a piece to everybody at the table. And his eyes would light up, because he would, you know, he would just be excited to watch all the kids eating this, this bitter herb, you know. And, uh, and we didn't want to eat it, you know. Uh, but we would have to. He says it would s- it's tradition. We have to eat it. Listen. Traditions. There are traditions within our Christian community, within our faith in Jesus. And if we stop following those traditions, then how will our children know? If we don't do those things like on Easter and on Christmas and and coming to church and praying, and if our children don't see us doing that, then how will they know to do it? So there's traditions, and in the Jewish world, this is one where we eat the bitter herb. And he would tell us, as we're eating this and cringing you know, with the bitter herb, he'd say, we eat this bitter herb to remind us of how bitter life was for our ancestors at the root, at the beginning of time when they were in bondage in Egypt. Remember they were in Egypt for how many years? Anybody know? 400, 430 years they were in bondage. And then we come to the next item on the sated tray, which is called the maror." Generally, it's freshly ground horseradish. And everybody at the table would take a piece of the, uh, the unleavened bread, unleavened to remind us of being without leaven, without, good. And we would take about a teaspoon of this, and he would tell us again, we have to eat this. <laughs> and he would be passing it out to the kids and his eyes are lighting up, you know. <laughs> well, he's not here today, <laughs> so I don't have to eat it. Any volunteers? <laughs> you know what happens when you eat a teaspoon of horseradish? You cry, that's right, you cry. You have very little choice in this matter. <laughs> it's between the horseradish and your sinuses. And the horseradish wins, and that's what it's called to do. Yeah, the horseradish wins. And it brings tears to our eyes. And as we eat it, we're supposed to, he would tell us, it reminds us the tears remind us that we shed for those that were in bondage under Pharaoh in Egypt. And today, when we celebrate the Passover Seder, and um, and we celebrate the Passover Seder, yeah, I'm Jewish. I'm 100% Jewish. I'm Jewish by blood. I'm Jewish by heritage. But I'm Christian by faith. Isn't that what it is? A circumcision of the heart. It's a change of your heart, you know. And so. When we celebrate the Passover, you know, when we come to the bitter herbs and we start to shed tears, you know, I'm reminded of those that are still in bondage today—friends of mine, family of mine—who have no hope, who have no faith, and I, I think of them as well. And then we come to the next item on the seder tray, which is called the charoset. Can you say that one? Oh, you're doing good, charoset. And this is generally nuts and honey and raisins and apples and. Um, Cinnamon and a little bit of wine. And if my grandfather was making it, a lot more wine. <laughs> and it's made like a paste, like a sop. Remember in the Bible, it says that Jesus says the one who dips in the sop. And this paste-like substance, this herosis, is supposed to remind us of the mortar that our ancestors used to build the bricks for Pharaoh. And we would eat about a teaspoon of this. And uh, as we eat this, we would ask Grandpa Joe, why? why, when everything is so bitter, do we have this sweet stuff on the table? And he would tell us, well, even in the midst of bondage, redemption is sweet. And so this reminds us of the sweetness of redemption. And then we come to the next item on the Seder tray, which is called the Hagiga, which means temple. And we use a hard-boiled egg. A hard-boiled egg that's generally roasted. This is hard-boiled, right, Pastor? (laughs) I did this one time, not too long ago. It wasn't hard-boiled, we had a whole mess up here, so here we go. Okay, it's (laughs) hard-boiled. So, (laughs) we take a hard-boiled egg, and you stick it in the oven. The hagiga, the temple, it reminds us of the temple. And the idea is that when you roast the egg, the shell starts to fall off the egg. And the shell coming off the egg is to remind us of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Kind of like the walls come tumbling down. Jewish people mourn the loss, express sorrow over the destruction of the temple. It's their desire the temple would be standing today. Hey, it's our desire the temple would be standing today and that Jesus would be reigning in it. And so the egg is to remind us of the temple and the shell coming off the egg reminds us of the destruction of the temple. And before we eat the egg, we dip it into the bowl of salted water, which represents tears. So by dipping the egg in the salt, salted water, we're reminded of the tears that we shed for the destruction of the temple. But you know, as a Christian, the egg reminds me of something else. It reminds me of new birth, new life. And then we come to the last item on the Seder tray, which is probably the strangest of them all, which is the Zoroa which is the shank bone, the shank bone of a lamb. See, Passover used to be known as the feast of the Passover lambs. Before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, those lambs that were sacrificed on the Passover, well, not all of them were burned up. Much of it was given back to the people to feast on. Hence, it was called the feast of the Passover lambs. But ever since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and all the way through to today, religious Jewish people don't eat lamb on Passover. My grandfather would pound the table and he'd say, "Not until we can sacrifice again. Not until the temple is standing, then we will eat the Paschal lamb." So in the Jewish home, they'll eat brisket, they'll eat chicken, they'll eat other meats. They won't eat lamb. But you know, it's an interesting thing. Generally, Passover falls out right around Easter. Generally, it falls out during the, starts out on Good Friday, which was last week, and. Uh, you know, but this year, because of the lunar calendar and the new moon, it uh, starts April 22nd. And, um, but typically when it would come out around Easter, for us as Christians, and we still do, we eat lamb on, on Easter. It's, it's a tradition for many families to eat lamb on Easter because it reminds us of the Paschal lamb. But for Jewish people, no lamb. Not until we can sacrifice again. See these parallels. But you know, as we get closer to Passover, and we start to see newspaper articles and magazine articles, and I saw 10 Commandments was on TV already with, uh, with Charlton Heston, and I suppose it'll be on again. Some of you shaking your heads, you saw it. Uh, and we start to think about Passover, it raises an interesting question. You know, when they focus on Passover, they focus on three items in these articles many times. They focus on the Seder tray, the egg, the temple, and the sacrifice. And it raises an interesting question. With no temple today, no altar, no sacrifice, how are we supposed to atone for our sins? For the law of Moses is perfectly clear. God gives us clear instruction on how we atone for our sins. It's in Torah. I don't know if anybody knows Torah. Torah is the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch. Some people call it, well, the Jewish people would call it the law. And in the law, in Torah, God gives us this clear instruction in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. God says through the prophet Moses, I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by means of life that you use to atone for your sins. God said it was through the shedding of blood. Some people today, Jewish and non-Jewish, would tell you, well, maybe that blood thing was true some 2,000 years ago. It doesn't apply today to our lives. And you would ask, well, how do you know that you'll have forgiveness? Well, my father, who passed away a number of years ago, I would sit across from him, and he wasn't a believer. None of my family a believer outside of my children and my wife, none of my family. Some of them don't even talk to me anymore. But I would ask my father, well, how do you know you won't be separated from God? And the typical answer is, well, I've been a good person. I haven't hurt anybody. I do good things. I try to help the community. I give back. I pray. I fast. I would hope that they would tip the scales. Friends, those things are important. But they're not the means for salvation. God said in the scriptures, in Leviticus 1711, it's through the shedding of blood. That's how. And once you, get, you receive forgiveness by accepting blood atonement, then those are the things that you do. The good works, prayer, fasting. What does James say in his book? It says, he says, faith without works is dead. And so atonement comes through the shedding of blood. But with no temple, no altar, no sacrifice, how is it possible today? How do we do it? How do we shed blood today? Well, some 2,000 years ago there lived a Jewish man and his name was Yochanan. We know him today as John, John the Baptist. And one day while John the Baptist was baptizing people in the River Jordan, his eyes fell upon another man walking towards him. His name was Jesus, but he was called Yeshua See, that was his his Hebrew name, Yeshua. Can you say that? He wasn't called Jesus. He was called Yeshua, which means salvation. And John looked up and declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's how. Through the Lamb of God who came to earth, who shed his blood freely. Didn't have to do that, did he? Didn't freely gave his life. And when he was on that cross, or if you want, the tree that he was crucified on, what was the last thing he said? It is finished. That's the last thing he said. It is finished. And it wasn't too long after that that the temple was destroyed and they couldn't sacrifice anymore. You see, it was through his blood atonement. He came to earth, he paid the price for you. And for me, and last Sunday on Easter Sunday, the check cleared. He rose, and we have faith in him through the blood of the Lamb of God, amen? It's now time for the second cup, the cup of plagues. Now, Jewish tradition states that a full cup represents complete joy. But in one sense, our joy isn't complete with this cup. You see, in the Jewish home, they dip their finger in this cup 10 times. And they allowed these ten drops to fall on their ten on their plate. And these ten drops represent the ten plagues that fell upon the land of Egypt. They commemorate the plagues, they remember the plagues. Back to this idea of if we forget, how will our children know? Yep. So they they go through the ten plagues. They grieve what took place in Egypt. Pharaoh defied the will of God. God said, Let my people go. And Pharaoh said, No, I refuse. I will not. And because of the hardness of his heart, he brought death and destruction into his own land. It's his own home. You know the story. His own son was killed, the death of the firstborn. And so in the Jewish home, they have this cup. And they drink, they do the finger drops, droplets off their finger ten times. And then they drink the cup of plagues to commemorate, to remember the plagues that fell upon the land of Egypt. But as I said, Passover is a time of rejoicing, it's a time of giving thanks. It's a time of celebrating, not only because he redeemed the children of Israel, but because he redeemed me and he redeemed many of you. And together, we've been allowed to pass over from death to life. Amen? And it's usually after the second pouring, the second cup, that um, all the foods come out. The meats and the soups, uh, matzo ball soup. Anybody ever have matzo ball soup? All right, look at all the hands, wow. Matzo ball soup, all these great foods, you know. And I didn't bring any of these foods with me today. You know, um, I won't go into more about our, the work we do. Uh, Surely will be up at the table uh, and come by the table and we can answer any questions that you may have. And if you, you know Jewish people and are curious to know how to reach them, we'd love to partner with you in reaching Jewish people. I know there's Jewish people down in this area. And um, many times they might be what I call closet Jews. You know, you don't know they're Jewish until you really get into a conversation with them. And we have different, I- things on the table back there that might be of some help to you there's some free literature and then there's some not so free literature there's some books there if you want to learn how to do your own passover seder as a family family we have haggadahs back there if you want to do a bible study on the passover and go into greater detail than i'm sharing with you we have this book which was found uh written by the founder of the ministry christ in the passover wonderful book some other great books and uh, i don't know if you heard that music that was playing earlier today when you came in if you like that and the music that I just played now, it's what I call um, Jewish gospel music. It's kind of like praises to Jesus, but like Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> Got to tell you, when we get to heaven, this is the type of music they're going to be playing. <laughs> anyway, we have some CDs back there if you're interested in that. Uh, some free literature and not-so-free literature. Thank you for allowing me to share with you. And surely, if you want to know more about your Judeo-Christian roots, fill out the card make sure you get it. Thank you. No, give him the glory. Give him the glory. So now, this was in place of the meal. Now the meal is over. And uh, generally, we would have the meal in the other room. And then we would come back into the living room where the Seder table is set up. And my grandfather would begin again. He would stand up and he'd start to pour the third cup. The most important pouring of all, the cup of redemption. And he would say, wait, we can't continue. We can't partake of this cup yet because something is missing. Something that was broken, wrapped in a napkin, and hidden, needs to come back. Ah, yeah. Anybody remember what it was called? Dessert, yeah, good, good, that's fine, I'll take that. Dessert, or the Komen. remember, the Komen?" And it's at this time that my grandfather, tradition, hundreds and hundreds of years. My grandfather would allow, um, you know, he'd tell the kids, all of us, okay, go and find the Afikoman, see where I hid it. And we would run through the house looking for where Grandpa Joe hid it. And um, my brother always found it, you know. (laughs) But I found it today. (laughs) And it would be given back to the head of the household, who would then pay a ransom They sang about a ransom today, or a reward. And he would take it, and he would open it up, and he would break it into pieces about the size of an olive pit, in the Jewish home. Pit, about the size of an olive pit. And he would pass a piece to everybody at the table. And everybody at the table in the Jewish home would take the unleavened bread, unleavened to remind us of being without sin, and the cup of redemption. And they would take it together. Does this look familiar? It should, because this is the origin of our communion service. The Lord's Supper, the communion service, came out of a Passover Seder. In a few minutes, Chris will lead us in a communion. We'll close today with a communion. And not only do I see our Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, represented here, but what about What about the unleavened bread? You know, rabbis have laid down special instructions on how the matzah, as it's called, the unleavened bread is made. When matzah is made, it's baked. And when it's baked, it's put on racks. And when it's put on these racks, it gets these markings on it, which almost appear as if they're stripes. And it reminds me of a prophecy that comes out of Isaiah. Isaiah 53 verse 5 that says, "By his stripes we are healed, unleavened without sin stripes." And you know when they make matzah, the rabbis say it must be pierced; there must be holes in it. Do you see that? And it reminds me of another passage that comes out of uh, the Old Testament, that comes out of uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, which is a prophecy that points. Write these down, check them out later. Which is a prophecy that points to the second coming of Jesus. Uh, Zechariah 12.10, and it says, um, They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and mourn as one mourns for an only child, an only son. Unleavened, without sin, striped, pierced. Is this not a picture of Jesus? And you go, Bruce, how come they don't see it? Hey, there was a time that I couldn't see it. Perhaps there was a time that you couldn't see it. But if he can remove the scales from my eyes, if he can remove the scales from your eyes, he can remove the scales from their eyes. But friends, if you don't tell them, if you don't invite them, how will they ever know? And it goes beyond that. What about, what about the afikoman, the dessert? What about that? Broken, wrapped in linen, buried, and then comes back? Is that not a picture of Jesus who was broken for us? wrapped in linen, buried, and then came back, and hallelujah, he's coming back again? Doesn't this speak of Jesus? And it goes beyond that. In the Jewish home, they do this, and they don't see it. What about this three-pocket pouch? Remember I told you about this? You know, this three-pocket pouch. Why is it always the middle piece that's removed from the three-pocket pouch? Asked rabbis over the years, why the middle piece? Got all kinds of explanations, and one explanation I got, the rabbi said it represents um, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I said, okay, so what's the connection with Isaac and pulling it out of the bag and breaking it and wrapping it and hiding it, and how is it all tied together? And he gave me some explanation that, quite frankly, didn't make a whole lot of sense. I've heard other explanations. None of them made a whole lot of sense, except one. One which has its origin some 2,000 years ago. This Three-pocket pouch, this matzah tash, as it's called, forms a unity, a triunity, a trinity. And just such a Hebrew word that means unity, but also in, it's used in the Bible in another manner. It's used two ways. The word echad, it's used to represent, to mean the word uh, one, but it also uh, represents uh, refers to the plurality of God. It's used as one and as the unity. And one particular place where it's used is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 6. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Echad is the word. and the Hebrew, Shma Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Echad, it means one. But it also refers to the plurality of God. And we see it in, in the Hebrews. When you read it in Hebrew, you see this word Echad, going back and forth between one and, and the plurality of God. We who know the, the, matz- the three-pocket pou- pouch, the Matsutosh, and understand the unity of this three-pocket pouch realizes that uh, this unity is a trinity. It's three in one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And why is the middle piece removed broken, wrapped in linen, buried and then comes back because it represents Jesus. Jesus who left the Echad, left the unity, left heaven where his father was in the spirit, came to earth. God incarnate came to earth to be with us. And he said, this is my body. On that Passover Seder, which initiated the Lord's Supper, the communion, this is my body broken, you, 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 all of us. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And they, in the Jewish home, they take that. And they also refer to the bread as uh, the bread of affliction. And they take the bread and and they pour the cup, the cup of redemption. You know, on Passover, the wine is red. On On some Jewish holidays, it doesn't have to be red. It could be any color. It could be white or rosé. Passover must be red. I'd ask, why red? To remind us of the blood of the lambs that was sacrificed on Passover. Hey, it works for me. Reminds me of the blood of the lamb. And in the Jewish home, they would take the cup of redemption and the unleavened bread. They would take it together. And they miss it. They miss it. What a heritage. What a rich heritage we have that comes out of the Jewish Passover Seder. few minutes, we'll partake together. and I hope that understanding this enhances your understanding of the Lord's Supper and how it all ties together. It's like a puzzle. The pieces fitting together. And then we come to the fourth and final cup. Jesus said, I won't drink of this cup until we're together in my Father's house. This is the cup of Hallel, the cup of praise. All of you know a Hebrew word. You may not know that it's Hebrew, but you know it. And that's hallelujah. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word. Halel, the root of the word, means praise and Yah comes from God's name, Yahweh. Hallelujah. Praise God. And so in the Jewish home, they take this and they say, Shekheilu Shalom Yerushalayim, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that next year we would have this cup in Jerusalem with the Messiah. Next year with the Messiah, they're waiting for the Messiah. You see, the Jewish people are waiting for him to come the first time. We're waiting for him to come back. Next year in Jerusalem with the Messiah, works for me, works for you next year with Jesus come quickly but there's one more cup on the table this is the last one that's this cup right here and this is an interesting cup nobody drinks from this cup this cup is filled to the rim nobody sits in this chair this is a special chair and at the end of the service there's a tradition which is this is called the cup of Elijah and what happens is the youngest child goes to the door of the home and holds the door open. And you see, it comes out of, it's scriptural, comes out of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And God speaking through the prophet, Malachi says, before the day of the Lord, I will send my messenger who will come and announce the coming of the day of the Lord. Jewish people take that to mean Elijah, or one like Elijah. Why Elijah? Well, Elijah was taken up. They never found Elijah. So they believe it would be Elijah. And so in the Jewish home, They fill this cup to the rim, child holds the door open, everybody with the fourth cup, the cup of praise, the hallelujah cup, we start singing and we'd watch the cup to see if we see any bubbles on it, you know. And um, one year we came back to the table after the meal in the other room. True story, came back to the meal after the meal, came back to the table, the Seder table after the meal, and we looked at the cup and it was empty. We thought he came and we missed him. (laughs) Come to find out my brother drank the whole cup got in a lot of trouble that night. <laughs> so in the, this is tradition, hundreds and hundreds of years. The youngest child goes to the door and holds the door open. And they sing songs with the fourth cup, welcoming in this one to drink from the cup. Scripture says, before the Messiah, the day of the Lord, I will send my messenger. And they wait. As they'll be waiting or on April 22nd, they'll go through this Ask if you know a Jewish person, hey, what about the cup of Elijah? Ask them about that. And uh, let their eyes light up and they'll tell you all about it. You know? and oh yeah, we opened the door and maybe that'll be a segue for you to share with them that he has come. Because you see the Jewish people are waiting for this one to come. This messenger. And they'll wait. And they'll wait. And they'll wait. As they've been waiting over 2,000 years. But I'm here to testify. Testify to something that um, Jesus tells us. In Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, if you care to believe that John the Baptist is the Elijah who came and announced the coming. When he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you care to believe that John the Baptist is Elijah, well, then you know the Messiah has come as well. And his name is Jesus. He's come for us. And one day he will return. Amen. Thank you for allowing me to share with you, Brother Chris, if you want to lead us in communion, we'll partake in that.